Good morning. Um, this is Cassie Smith and Rowan Salinas, and we're here on September 3rd, 2012, and it is 9.30 a.m., and we are at the Santa Cruz Cultural Center in Austin, Texas. Um, Rowan, do you give permission for me to record this interview on behalf of the Austin History Center? I do. Great. Um, could you please state your name and spell it for us? Okay, it's uh, Roen Salinas, R-O-E-N-S-A-L-I-N-A-S. Okay, and we're going to start with an easy question. Where were you born and where did you grow up? I, while I was uh, delivered in Waco, <laughs> Texas, uh, the reality is at the age of three months, uh, my, fam my family, my father was with, uh, with the military, and so he got transferred over to Bergstrom. And so but at the age of three months forward, you know, I've, I've been here in Austin. I consider myself, a, 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 I guess, technically not born, but totally raised in Austin. But totally raised in Austin. And can you remember growing up when you were small, what was Austin like for, for a kid? Oh, Austin was a very, uh, a very, it was a small town. It was probably about the size of San Marcos, of what I remember. I ended up going to school over at St. Mary's Cathedral downtown. Um, and it was right in the, the it's right in the heart of of, uh, of the downtown sector. And um, I remember during those uh, those times, uh, as a little kid, being there at, at the the Catholic parochial school, uh, all the nuns uh, constantly telling them to stay away from the fence because during this time the civil rights movement was happening. There were protests left and right, and being that we were one block off of Congress, there was a lot of activity. And so I remember the nuns and, uh, and uh, the brothers and, and the padre uh, always saying, you know, stay away from the fence. You don't want to talk to these people because, you know, uh, they, can, they can be very dangerous. And so for me, that was uh, a, a really a, an awakening of like, well, what's going on outside the fence? Uh, what's on the other side? Uh, and so that was happening in tandem with what was happening within the, the barrio community because as youngsters, uh, we've always been involved in dance and cultural arts, and so we would end up, you know, coming over to the barrio thinking, oh, the barrio is the dangerous place, at least that's what everybody says, and so as, as little chavalillos, you know, you're, you've got these conflicting signals, uh, but, you know, Austin was a small town back then, it was the capital, so there was a little, a little, a little bit of political charge, but it was a small community, it was, it was very much um, what I remember and what I experienced is that it, I grew up in Austin during a period of, of, of change, change in a lot of different ways, socially, culturally, politically. Um, and it's interesting being here in Austin uh, my entire life uh, uh, to see different waves of change happen here in Austin. And of course, I'm sitting in one right now, which is gentrification of East Austin, which is a whole other conversation. Mm -hmm. But Austin's, Austin, though, has always really been very beautiful as it relates to diversity, as it relates to the arts, as it relates to cultural expression. Uh, and this sense of we're all in it together. Mm -hmm. And where, where did you live in Austin during that time? We've lived all over the place, but we've always done our, our craft of, of dance uh, here in East Austin. Um, and I think a little bit down the road when you interview Mother, she'll tell you the stories of the founding of the dance company and the struggles she had. But we've always uh, maintained our practice with the Aslan Dance Company, which is you know the family dance company that, that we've been doing with for almost four decades. I'm trying to plug that in. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've always worked at Pan American Recreation Center, Mets Recreation Center, 
Uh, we worked over here at Saragossa. So it's always been barrio-based because um, it's, it has been the logical home for the kind of cultural expression uh, that we do. Uh, back in the, um, in the late 80s, we finally ended up securing our own space so that the dance company could begin to nurture its own ideas of how it sees um, uh, community through the expression of dance. Is that where we are? That right is now? where we are. <laughs> and like this building back in the day uh, was an aborted up, abandoned building, graffitiized, the whole nine yards. I remember when we used to start, when we held our first programs here in classes, uh, we'd get phone calls with people saying, oh, it's in East Austin. Oh, I wouldn't even go there with a police escort. Oh, wow. And so that was the nature of, of the divides that were happening way back then. Things are very different now. And I'm real pleased that we've been able to, to you know, turn this little space into a place that generates some, what I think, some really badass art. Yeah, and good energy, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Do you remember a time when you started in the arts? Because it seems like your family has been in them since you were born. Yeah. But can you remember some of those first things that you were involved with? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I remember, I remember mother and, and uh, several families uh, from, from different neighborhoods came together to begin to, to, uh, to work on, uh, I guess the parents were want, interested in getting the students involved in something that was productive, positive, uh, expressive, uh, something that, that would unite families and community. Uh, I think a little further down the road, I think you know, we're talking probably late 80s, uh, was was a moment when all of a sudden Juarez Lincoln University came online. And that was on, on Cesar Chavez and I-35. And uh, for me, this was really, really a valuable moment because that's kind of the genesis moment when the dance company formalized. We had already had practice before we incorporated in 1974. Uh, but what, what was so beautiful about Juarez Lincoln was not only was it a gorgeous space, it was, it was kind of a maze. Uh, but it had this gorgeous auditorium with a wooden stage uh, it had a gallery with gorgeous wooden floors, and so we were able to, to create our, our practices there and, and work alongside public intellectuals. Uh, because it was a university, uh, it was a Chicano university, it was really, really focused towards uh, a, lot of, a lot of Chicano interests. And so it was really nice to have these academics right next to the artists and the children, all in one space. That created a beautiful synergy of, of we're sharing, we're sharing so much. Um, I remember very clearly when we would when we would do our rehearsals, we'd bring our do our practicas, whether we were bringing in maestros de danza or de folklorico or lo que sea. Uh, I remember just looking over, and this was during the time when I remember Amado Pena was barely getting started. He had his silk screens over there, off on t on the side, and he would be looking at us rehearsing, and we would be looking at him creating his artwork, you know, studying each other uh, within within this you know same space of what is Lincoln, and so. For me, that was a magical moment where, where I think amongst all of us, there is this possibility where, where the, this idea of, of the public intellectual or the academic can interface directly and cohabitate with the, with the creators of art. I always say that theory follows people. And what I mean by that is art always happens. It, it be, it's from the people, of the people, by the people, for the people. And it's usually post facto that the academics began to write about the work. And so, for me, Juarez Lincoln was a magical moment. That was during the time of the League of United Chicano Artists, and there was, um, there was a, lot of, a lot of stuff happening. Danza, uh, Azteca Conchero was happening, and, and it was a magical moment. So, that was the genesis of, of where I thought, 
la cultura es posible uh, in the future. And, and so here we are. Was that also um, how your interest in, in researching academically started as well? Mm, absolutely. I, th I, think, I think the nature of the work that I do, uh, which is studying culture, but also studying the human body, um, no doubt that was an, an originating space for me uh, that ended up leading me to more inquiries. So then I started my craft in this, in Juarez Lincoln, this, this Chicano place. It, it was a politically active space. Um, and to have so many diverse art, artists in one space, you know, working to collaborate, working to co-create, whether it be projects, festivals, uh, works of art, you name it, was, was quite powerful. All of a sudden, I found myself then going and doing my cursos de verano in Mexico City and going into this other community, which is Mexico proper, feeling completely norteado. Uh, you know, I remember very clearly as a youngster uh, during those cursos, uh, I had the other folks that were in the classes, they would call me everything from pocho, te, uh, pendido, norteamericano, gringo, you name it. I got all those labels. And so all of a sudden, you know, I'm in these different spaces, the spaces here at Juarez Lincoln that was so richly Chicano. And then I go to Mexico, and I'm disavowed for being exactly that. Uh, of course, you know, I spent my time, I would have to spend my time talking to, to, to my classmates uh, in these cursos de verano, letting them realize, you know, I'm the same blood you are. It's not my fault uh, that the Mexican government somehow has either forgotten a community, abandoned a community, uh, decided to not work with the community, whatever, whatever the, the failures are. Uh, the reality is I have to live in my skin and in my blood. And with that, I use that as a very deep resource for my cultural creativity. Wow. And what, in what university or what organization were those classes affiliated with? Uh, I, went, uh, I went to like the Academia de Danza Nacional Mexico City, the, the Instituto de Bellas Artes. In addition, I, I ended up uh, also, uh, I know, participating in several independent groups uh, like the Iste de Tlalpan uh, group, and I even joined in with the Departamento de Turismo to go really kind of get a very diverse uh, uh, education in what is uh, Danza de Mexico. Uh, but in addition to that, one of the things that I felt very proud of was, was my mother, uh, along with the energy of what was Juarez Lincoln, started uh, creating this alliance with Danza, uh, Danza Azteca, Danza de Concheros. And so I would also go and, and do days of obligation amongst uh, Los Indígenas uh, de Mexico. And uh, <laughs> those are our, uh, our traveling mariachis over here. <laughs> Uh, spending time with los indígenas, understanding their perspective, which is very different than the modern Mexicano. And so all of a sudden, for me, it was about you know, understanding even deeper layers of, an, of identities that are all part of who I am. And so I think that's why in, in a lot of my projects, I do bring in lo indígeno. I bring in this idea of Mexicanidad. I bring in this idea of modernity and, and Americanidad, which is Chicanismo. Uh, into my works, and hopefully, you know, the, I, I really do hope that the whole idea is to create a platform where people can come in to learn about, to understand, to interact, and hopefully to collaborate, 
and I think we've been real successful uh, with with the Aslan Dance Company in creating a platform uh, for really gorgeous cross-cultural uh, programming. And when when you were spending time in Mexico and coming back to Austin, how was it received here? The things that you were learning there, mm. and were you implementing them in, in Austin at that time? Absolutely. Um, I go for the cursos de verano, uh, and I remember back during this day. This is back in the days of, of uh, JJ Pickle and and Lloyd Doggett. We would create these. Um, international exchanges through Arts International, and so we'd go spend time. And so we'd come back, and one of the things that we would do is quickly assemble a project that would reflect the work that we learned. A lot of it was tradition-based, uh, which was fabulous. And I think, I think back then, we're talking about, you know, we're now the mid-70s, late-70s. Uh, that was a period where, where Austin was really small, like we talked about. And this idea of, of, oh, there's this small group of folks that are studying work in Mexico. Mexico City, and then coming back and they're creating work. There was this gorgeous, gorgeous idea that that Austin, uh, we can in fact exceed our our city limits uh, in order and bring in these cultural tones that add to the rich textures of, of our arts community. Wow! And so, um, were you here at the time when Juarez Lincoln dissolved? Oh yeah, I remember. Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, one of uh, a, a real deep mourning, mourning, not mourning as an am, but mourning as in sadness, was the day that the wrecking ball came in. And, uh, uh, you know, we as youngsters, we would, you know, go in through the front door, go around the little staircase where uh, Raul Valdez had a gorgeous mural uh, with a farm worker with his hand out uh, with real dirt on it. And so we'd go, we'd go by and we'd actually touch it. And then we'd run up to the <laughs> studio to, to go get our work, uh, work done. So then all of a sudden when, when we were told and that uh, Juarez Lincoln was going to be demolished, it was, it was big, a really big moment of, of great sadness for all of us. Mm -hmm. Because all of a sudden this idea of, of us being able to interact with, with these academics, with administrators, whatever, in a, in a large facility that's located downtown, uh, a place that gave us a sense of, of hope and meaning and purpose and future. Uh, with the swing of that iron wrecking ball in front of that gorgeous mural with the Quetzalcoatl serpent and, um, and all the beautiful imagery, the wrecking ball just knocking it down was a moment of, of deep breath. And we, you know, it, 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 was a, it was a shocking moment. It was a shocking moment where right when you think you've You've, you've, you've found the place, the place that will provide a future of, of opportunity. Right at that moment, it can be demolished, destroyed, taken away, never to be seen again. And for me, you know, going back to the whole idea of archive, you know, how, how with the swing of the wrecking ball, erasure was part of the, uh, uh, of the larger brushstrokes of, of what was to come. And so now we have an IHOP. Um, and what kinds of things came in to fill that void? You have all of these people really um, involved in the, the arts community and the academic community. What happened after that? Everybody ended up really kind of going in their own way, going their own way. I remember, you know, Lucha ended up moving over to the Q House on Cesar Chavez, and along with all, 
along with Lucha, when all, a lot of the visual artists, the Santa Barrasas, the Raul Valdeses, uh, the Jose Trevinos, all those great artists that were, that I felt like at Juarez Lincoln, you know, they were there. They were there to answer the questions. And you could ask, why that color? And they would give you, and all of a sudden that, as, as a dance artist, that would color how you think about movement. So after the destruction of Juarez Lincoln, then all of a sudden everybody goes their own way. And in a real sense, we, we all began to operate autonomously with little interaction with each other, except for you know the, the most notable Cinco de Mayo's and Vieses. Um, there wasn't a lot of effort to, uh, to reconcile that, uh, that those, the, to reconcile the linkages that were severed. And so I think and everybody ended up going their way and I think that really did dilute, fragment and, and segment our arts community. I can only imagine looking, looking at it, what, 30 years later or 35, whatever it is, uh, think back that had Juarez Lincoln stayed on board and had it become something that we all dreamed of, uh, what, it, what it would be now. And I think, I think something like that could have really become a national beacon for new models of, of bringing art and education together into frameworks of study that, that community and academics could really source uh, for future knowledges. Some would say that the idea for the Mexican American Cultural Center came out of that space at Juarez Lincoln, that they, people would want to to make a new space to practice. Do you, do you remember when you first heard about the idea of, of a Mac? I do. I do. I, I, I can say, yeah, because there's this idea of, of memory and remembering and longing of this utopian space that we call White as Lincoln. I don't know how much of it you, I, I, I think we all can say, okay, that was a model if it links directly to the Mac, I don't know, that's not for me to say. I think what brought Juarez Lincoln such a, 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 this beauty is its independence and its autonomy from governmentality. Um, perhaps it was, you know, the city working to respond to a, to a grave error it created or that it committed. Um, it, I would think that if there was the, there was a, a dire interest in full, in filling that gap created, it would have happened a whole long time ago. There would have been some serious groundwork created to create not just a space, but to fortify our organizations and our institu our cultural institutions that are money poor but culture rich. I didn't see any of that. I think as we all went our own way, the challenges that beset us all were all of a sudden we had to compete in a larger economy, the arts community, and whether it be funding or space or whatever. And you know, we lost a lot of a lot of artists. There were a lot of organizations that came together. Uh, I remember. I remember. Uh, yeah. I mean. Dance companies lost. Artists, you know, disappeared, dissipated, and disappeared. Um, 
No, it was, it was, it was an incredible moment of, of great change. So I think what ended up happening, if you call this linkage, I'd be like, yeah. But community was like, okay, what can we do to kind of bring us all back together? And so I think, I think that idea, and I think there's also this thirst by the community wanting to see more art, uh, wanting to see art that reflects who they are, rather than seeing kind of mass commercial art that, that for, you know, from the barrio perspective, is a little bit distant and removed. It take, there's a lot of work in translation, trying to figure out, okay, so, you know, what is this cinema about? I don't relate to it because it doesn't look like me. It, it's not my experience. So I'm having to learn to, to experience someone else's experience in order for it to somehow validate my experience. Um, so yeah, I think you know, at that moment, all of a sudden there were some, some folks that got together in the community that began to, I think, you know, question the motives of the city, question the motives of how we as a community, as a Mexican-American community, could, could in fact empower ourselves to see a future. I know that before there was the task force, there were several individuals that, that came forward, and, and this was a long time ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and I remember very clearly that they, uh, especially at like the Q house, the, the Quintanilla house, uh, there were this, this idea of we cannot be assaulted like this. We need to bring about change, because if we don't do it, nobody's going to do it for us. Do you remember who some of those individuals were? I know this is before the Ponciano Morales uh, study. Oh. I know it was. A, I know for sure it was several of the several of the administrators that were part of the League of United Chicano Artists. Uh, I remember, you know, folks like uh, uh, like Juan Pablo Gutierrez was one of them. Uh, Carlos Pineda, no doubt. You know, he had just finished coming into the city, and I think he was beginning to understand what was uh, uh, the scenario and. And, and then, you know, from the larger sphere, uh, I know there were folks like, uh, like uh, Kathy Vasquez and Emma Barrientos, uh, along with um, Amalia Rodriguez Mendoza. And a lot of that, those folks that were the early politicos, uh, I know they were very interested in situating their foot within the political door by asking, you know, hey, what about our communities? And so, you know, I, w I would, I would, like I say, a time span, but you know, those are some of the folks that I do remember. But there were a, a whole array of community members, I'm talking about residents, that were also very much interested in supporting this idea. During this time, there was a lot of, uh, during the Juarez Lincoln moment and the moment uh, immediately after was uh, the time of the Chicano, the Chicano movement here also. And so I know that there were a lot of folks from, like for example, the Brown Berets, that were very much interested in, in getting, having some kind of political voice uh, that would hopefully uh, evolve some cultural, social uh, equity. Uh, but I think, uh, and I say that because uh, with the dance company, I remember mother gathering all the, the youngsters together um, whenever there were protest marches, 
they would always, you know, the, 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 the organizers would always ask, hey, we need, we need folks, you know, we need for, for Aslan to, to come on board and, and join us in this protest march. And of course, mother, being the mother, the mother of all these children, being responsible, uh, would say, hey, hold on a second, you know, we're the cultural arm of the movimiento, you know, I don't want to put these children in harm's way. So I remember during all the marches, there were several marches. I remember they would start at Chicano Park and go underneath uh, I-35 and, and uh, volley up through uh, Congress Avenue. The children and women would go up front, and there we were, the, the youngsters. And I remember always leading the, in the protest marches, we'd always lead. And of course, we would have, uh, behind would be community members, and always the, the uh, political activists would be towards the end. And, and I remember very clearly, um, like for example, one protest march when we were going underneath I-35, you could see the mounted police, police cars everywhere. And here we are, little kids, you know, I, I was probably about 13, mm -hmm. uh, going, getting ready to enter. And it's like, you're entering into the space of the unknown with all these people behind you, you know, all giving gritos, you know, la raza unida nunca será vendida. And here we go. We enter in the mountain, and you can hear the horses. I felt they were intentionally galloping, you know, dancing. And you can hear them. <laughs> and here we go. And we enter, went underneath. And sure enough, as soon as we came out on the other side of I-35, uh, it would almost, almost seem like clockwork that the, that the activists, the, the strong activists, uh, the um, Paul Hernandez's, the the Boscos, all those those cats that were part of the uh, the activist arm of the movimiento. Uh, sure enough, they would always get stopped in the back, and so the protest would, while it was trying to move forward, it would have to stop and almost derail itself because the police would descend on them. And in the eyes of us youngsters, there was, you know, for us, there there's an incivility here, you know, uh, where we can't organize and voice our opinion where there is, rather than allowing us to, to partake in a peaceful uh, demonstration, there's this, this, you can just, it's a feeling of it's about to, there's an effort to try to close it down. Uh, and so, and the, I remember the, there was another protest when we were on Congress Avenue, we finally made it on another protest march uh, going down Congress Avenue, I think it was like right in front of Paramount Theater, I remember uh, there was a kerfuffle and the police came down. I remember Paul Hernandez with the Brown Berets. He was taken down hard and bloodied up. And, you know, here we are as kids. This is the image that we're receiving. These are our people in the community. These are our activists that we believe in. And they're being pounded upon by, by the police and, and by the larger city. Uh, and this coming off of what I just finished telling you about being at St. Mary's and at a few years younger, and, and being told that those people out there, you know, don't talk to them, they're bad. And, and here we are, it's like, no, we want rights. We're not bad. And so, did I answer your question? I think so. Um, I, two things, the first one is that, that divide seems to come up a lot, the 35 yeah. divide. And you, you, you seem to have had experiences on both sides of it. Um, so just, just to kind of remark on that uh, a little bit. But, the second thing is this consistent duality or this conjoining of the, the political activists and the cultural activists mm -hmm. is something that I've been really interested in. Right and it comes up in your story, and, and it's the same people, the same people who end up fighting for the MAC, the same people who are at Juarez Lincoln, or the same people mm -hmm. who are trying to get elected 
right. who are otherwise involved. Can you speak to that a little bit about the why those two things are so closely connected? You're talking about the divide and well, the social and cultural. Yes, the social and cultural. <clears throat> I think, you know, the idea of, of other, while Austin is a very progressive town, I think, you know, Austin still, and it still does, fear this idea of other. Um, and it's so, so, so easier to take a stand to protect a mainstream value than it is to work hard and incorporate difference as part of a structure. That's my larger overarching narrative. Um, and so I think, you know, this idea of, and we're talking even, you know, back in, in the late 70s, early 80s, this idea of difference was so, I remember Carol Keaton Rylander, the mayor at the time, uh, and um, and all, all those folks, because we traveled to England and to Scotland, the dance company to England and to Scotland, and we even went to Hong Kong, and we, we, we were doing good things. So there was part of the political system that was really wanting to support this idea of, oh, okay, within all of this, look, what is Chicanidad, there's these opportunities to really support folks. Um, but I think once you begin to support it, all of a sudden there becomes a, re there, there, there's a responsibility too. Because if you're gonna support, that means you're going to give an active voice. So I think there was always this idea of, of we can support either elements of, or we can support this idea or this notion of what we want to support which is a theme that I want to talk about a little bit later, which is who decides art. Um, but from, from the barrio perspective, and for me the barrio, I, I say that as Mexican-American, working class, you know, the, the folks that are, that are working to, to live. Uh, this idea of, of the divide has, has always been there. And I think, you, I, I, I'm sure with the History Center, all the stories about you know people of color get moved to East I-35, build this highway, separate. So this idea and this notion of, well, we want to be active participants in this larger conversation about a future Austin uh, came to the fore. Now, of course, it was during the Civil Rights Movement. You know, there were social and, and cultural uh, and political uh, manifests all over. So we were just one arm of it. And, um, and so it gets interesting, because not only is there a divide between mainstream downtown culture and cultures of others, because I include the African-American movement was quite strong back then also. Uh, but even within the Mexicano community, or the Mexican-American community, the Chicano community, um, there is the divides also. Divides of, oh, don't, don't be so radical, don't be so, you know, life is good, we're, we're doing fine, we'll get ahead eventually. Versus, you know, the folks that are like, no, we need equity now. We can't wait another day. And so, yeah, those, those divides have always happened. And I, I feel like while those divides happen, eventually those, those barriers, those borders, those limits do end up kind of fading away. It just takes so much work and energy uh, to translate, to explain, to, to create a, a general consensus and understanding 
that we're all in it together. And so whether it's downtown culture or barrio culture, it's like we're in it together. You know, the barrio lives within the city. And so this idea of, of moving forward together has been wrought with, with wonderful opportunity and difficult hardships. Um, has it changed today? I don't know. You know, I, I, I question it. I feel like Especially in light of our the demographics of Austin, I feel like if one were to take a look at development, community development, um, you know, there the equity just is not there. Just the laws of attrition have kind of dulled the edge. Do I wish there was more activism? Yes, absolutely. Do I wish there were more people involved? Yes, and I think the opportunity is now to continue enrolling people of all makes, models, and years into this project. Uh, this project of Austin being a true intercultural society. And I think Austin is, is on the cusp. It just needs to bite the bullet and go. Mm -hmm. So let's move back to the time when you first heard about this cultural center okay. and what it means and what it meant to you at that time and how you got involved. Okay. Yeah, like I say, uh, back then, this is, uh, we're talking again, the early 80s now. I remember Carlos Pineda coming coming onto the scene and you had the Kathy Vasquez with La Prensa newspaper. You had the Emma Barrientos because we were, we were in the cultural arts and so Gonzalo and Emma were at a lot of our events uh, supporting us and, and helping us. And so, you know, we'd talk to them and be like, we, you know, there's this idea. You gotta go. And so I remember as a, as a youngster, not only everybody from, the, from Aslan would, would go to, to speak on behalf of this idea of, of a cultural center. I myself was, you know, 12, 13, when I spoke in Citizens Communication uh, to, to the council and to, and to these different uh, forums that began seeding the idea of a cultural center. I remember back then I told them, you know, I, I just got started in the arts, you know, I'm, I'm a youngster. I would like a cultural center so that when I'm a little older, I can develop art and flourish as, a, as an, art, an Austin artist. Um, my idea, just like back then, as it is now, is to create dance that can, that can be danced all over the world. I would like for Austin dancers to uh, to be able to go and see, see through dance. That was like almost 35 years ago, um, you know, and here we are now and we're still waiting. Um, I re so that was, th those were my initial introductions to, to the MAC or this idea of the MAC. At that time it was just loose, loose talk, there wasn't anything formalized, and I want to say, um, the city ended up doing their first study, the Morales study, that began to explore the idea of, of a, it's a feasibility study, a cultural center, what would it take? You know, how can we conceivably convert one of our recreation centers into a cultural center? Uh, if we wanted to build a new one, what needs to be? So it, it began to consider a lot of the logistics. Um, so yeah, that was my introduction to the MAC. And back then, we had no idea what the MAC would be, what it, how it would look, what it would feel like. 
you know, what, what would be included in it, what, uh, what this, you know, we really didn't even have an idea of what a cultural center is, because the only cultural uh, venues that existed were like the Paramount Theater, the Zachary Scott, you know, the, the stalwarts, mm -hmm. the mainstream organizations. And so, uh, you know, the League of United Chicano Artists then, you know, did provide a model conceptually in our minds or in our spirit. Uh, but it, how do you translate that to a city? And, and so I think everybody was trying to struggle with, with we, need, we need something new. And nobody knew how to do that. And that's why these, these feasibility studies ended up happening. I know there were, there were two or three of them that ended up happening. And that parlayed into the task force. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, I want to say it was like back in 86, somewhere around there, mid-80s, mid that the task force was developed. And I remember, uh, I remember Diana Castaneda was uh, was a very integral component of the task force. She was my interface because not only did uh, she used to live right down the block, and she used to always say, "Hey, we need to go do this. You, we need the Aslan there." Go, and so uh, and so we were there. And, and a lot of it was word of mouth back then because, like, we couldn't even get the media to to help us gather information, and so that's where like uh, Kathy Vasquez became her, and her newspaper became important because it was one of the voices. Uh, voices for our interests, for our news. Um, and that's La Prensa. La Prensa, yeah. yeah. And uh, back then, I think El Mundo was barely getting started. And so, you know, they were, we, we were working, and, and uh, back then it was, it was neighborhood politics, and, and, and the politicos would come by and they'd come in, hey, you know, we're going to have a, 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 a meeting on this day, we need folks here, get the word out. And that's the way we did things back then. Uh, uh, beautiful moment. So the task force formed. And so all of a sudden, everybody's like, okay, so there, there is at least an effort or some type of officiation of this idea of a cultural center. So we, ha we supported it. I mean, you, you, we've got to support it. Did, it. did anybody know what it's going to look like, what it's going to feel like with everything I mentioned just a second ago? No. But we, d we did know that it had to happen. By this time, in California, and even in Chicago, and in San Antonio, Pedro Rodriguez, he was working with the City Cultural Arts Program here. Uh, by this time, he had just finished, he moved to San Antonio, and they had just finished launching the Guadalupe Cultural Arts Center. And, uh, and you know, he was part of the movimiento here, kind of tranquilo, because he was city, but he was part of it. And so he goes to San Antonio, and immediately, you know, over there, you know, the city grants them a theater, administrative building, you know, they work next to the plaza, work in collaboration with Guadalupe Church, and it's like, go! And Guadalupe, Guadalupe became, you know, this magnificent center, and the city had an investment in them, and believed in the work that they were doing, and they were doing great work. Very off, off mainstream circuit. Fabulous Tejano Chicano work. So all of a sudden, you know, we're seeing the models in California, San Antonio, all of these coming up coming up in their communities, and here we're thinking, okay, we got a task force now. We're going to have one next year. And so, you know, we all came, came to the rally to support the idea or the cause of a, of a cultural center. And I understand that you worked at the, the Guadalupe. I did. <laughs> I did. Many, many, uh, probably about a, uh, 10 years later. Yeah, I ended up uh, doing a two-year uh, 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 contract over there with Guadalupe because I wanted to understand you know, what are the internal mechanics of a cultural center? 
and no doubt Pedro, and I think because he was part of the movimiento, he had this, this laser beam attenuity to get things done. And with a, with a conocimiento, he was an artist too, he was a visual artist, with a conocimiento del arte. And, and this, this poder of bringing people together and create democr a democratic structure where you know music, dance, theater, visual arts, uh, media, everything could come together and it's like, go, create, create. I am here to, with this cultural center so that you can create, go create the best you can. Uh, and so yeah, I spent two years there and it's like, ah, you know, this, this is it. This is, a mo this is the Tejano model because I know California has their, has their uh, ways of, of, of doing things. Chicago, igual, oh, you know, everybody has, oh, each community is unique. So, so when I was at Guadalupe, and we're talking now 90. Yeah, I was there from late, late 89 to like 92. I went there and a couple of things became very, very clear for me as an artist being at Guadalupe, I was housed at the Instituto Cultural Mexicano in Hemisphere Park. And that's interesting because that's like Secretaria uh, General de Mexico sanctioning this place. Esto es Mexico. We had, we had the Frida Kahlo's, the Diego Rivera's, the Rufino Tamayo's, and just a whole slew of them in the museum. And to get to my studio, I had to walk right through all these great Mexican masters every day. So I was physically located over at, at the Instituto, but Guadalupe was in, in the West San Antonio Barrio. So I, you know, go check in over there. Then I scoot on over to the Instituto and, and do my work. I'd finish out my day, I'd go back to Guadalupe. So it was very interesting because all of a sudden I was walking, walking through doors of a Tejano Chicano barrio perspective. You know, we gotta create our art that means something to us because if we don't do it, no one else is going to do it. And so that's where you know folks like Jorge Piña and Juan Tejeda and um, Kathy Vargas, all those those fabulous programmers uh, and artists were creating great work, and I was really glad to be amongst their uh, amongst their their the, the program team. But then I come over here to the Instituto, and all of a sudden this is Mexico, Mexico de lo grande. I remember uh, specifically one time speaking with one of the directors and. And you know, here I'm a I'm a Tejano, I'm a, I'm a Chicano Tejano, and my Spanish is not government Mexico. <laughs> and so I remember, uh, I remember one time she saying, "Do you want to speak in English, or do you want to speak in Spanish?" And all of a sudden, I that was a really strong, pivotal moment because all of a sudden, every time I walked through the halls to see these great Mexican masters, I realized they all spoke Spanish perfect Spanish than Mexico. Here I am. Will my Spanish ever be that as good as theirs, first? Second of all, being in that space of Mexico, Mexico, where do I situate myself? Will I always be seen as, just like I mentioned about 10, 12 years earlier in that dance studio in Mexico City, Will I always be viewed as the pocho, the vendido, the gringo, the, the vendido within this space? And I remember going back to Guadalupe, you know, crossing the highway again, 
uh, and going back to Guadalupe and saying, hey man, I need space over here in the barrio. And, were, and you know, they were raising funds to, to expand, uh, but they didn't have it at that moment. And so I ended up going back and forth, and all of a sudden I ended up in this, in this, uh, in this really conflicting space, the Guadalupe state, that Gloria and Zaldúa would say, uh, uh, where I was neither here nor there, somewhere but nowhere, but definitely present. Um, and that's when after a couple of years, I had done a great program in building, building a program uh, with the Guadalupe Center that really was inspired by Folklorico. Uh, every time I would embark on something that was Chicano, it was kind of met with a little bit of resistance uh, from the Instituto side. Uh, and of course, Guadalupe kept saying, do more of that. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was like, okay, I gotta go home now. <laughs> and so I spent a couple of years, that's when I came back and started my studies and, and started coming, uh, coming and creating my own work. So when I got to Austin, all of a sudden it was like, I had this, Vamanos. We gotta, we gotta build some art here. I need to. I need. I've, I've got my my frames now in my mind. You know, I was dancing next to Frida Kahlo and, and the Diego Riveras. Uh, you know, I saw the cobre. You know, the the copper and the gold and the silver exhibits. You know, wealth of magnanimity. Now I gotta go home. I gotta go to my barrio, and we need to create our own gold, our own silver, and our own uh, bronze. So I came back and that was, I was really fueled with an excitement to want to create my dance. But I also, by going, going to San Antonio and spending that two year uh, engagement, I also learned a lot about structure, uh, about, about nonprofit structure, about um, how to manage art in light of, 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 of great challenges. Because Guadalupe did have its challenges, uh, but I got to see a great leader through Pedro to see how he mounts them, or how he takes them on, and how he challenges artists to make a difference. And his artists did make a difference. That, for me, that was the zenith of the Guadalupe Cultural Center. And of course, Splendors of Mexico was happening all day. So I came back, and that's when I ended up coming back into the, the MAC project, and it was like, okay, folks, we need to throttle this forward because I'm not gonna be alive forever you're not gonna be alive forever. We need to leave something for our kiddos. Mm -hmm. And we need, to, we need to mold it and put our own uh, impressions on it. Uh, and so when I got back, is this where, keep on going? Mm -hmm. Please. Uh, so when I, when I got back uh, in uh, 92, uh, it, was, it was gorgeous timing because I think uh, in 92 was when we were uh, going for, going before the first bond bond, city bond uh, campaign. And of course, all of a sudden, uh, you know, the big question was, well, what's going on here? We, we're set aside and alone. So you had all the bond, bond items and there was one item that was called the Mexican American Cultural Center. I think we in the, commu we in the community knew, well, if it's gonna hang out there by itself, it's, it's gonna be a hard sell. And sure enough, it went it went before the voters, and it, it didn't pass. So that was a that was like a moment of a wake up call. Um, so during that time, also I remember very clearly there was this there was a lot of conversation about you know because by this time I think the site of 600 River Street had already been eyeballed. It wasn't designated yet, but it was eyeballed. And I think we were going before the bond election. Uh, and one of the things, uh, 
one of the items that, and another reason why I think it was so difficult to sell the bond package was because it wasn't designated for a Mexican-American realtor. It was kind of the city had inventory, and, oh, let's see if we can raise some money, get sell a bond, and, and then we can apply it there. And I think you know that, that caused a lot of disconnect also because it wasn't designated. And um, so coming out of the failed bond, bond election, uh, we quickly in the community said, okay, let's organize. Let's start, let's start getting our, our shop in order. And by this time, the task force had already been working to, to, to do, they did a feasibility study. I want to say uh, they ended up, um, yeah, by this time, Kathy Vasquez from the Planning Commission had already gotten like a, uh, from the Planning Commission, ended up getting like $200,000 for an intensive study of what's needed for the Mexican American. So we were beginning to put the building blocks in place. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that, um, that needed to happen was the artist needed to organize, and we needed to establish a formal structure so that we could begin to own our future. And so the, La the LACA, the Latino Arts Consortium of Austin was developed in an attempt to bring all the collective voice of artists from community together. I think it was kind of like in the spirit of Lucha, you know, it's, it's, mm -hmm. but it was a loose association. It wasn't anything formal, but we did all come together on numerous occasions. And the task force was beginning to build uh, identify what needed to happen administratively so that we could move a project forward with some certainty. Um, and as we got together, I remember very clearly the city, because by this time we were already looking at 600 River Street, mm -hmm. and I remember the city on several occasions, uh, Jesus Olivares was I think the acting uh, board, board director, I remember him saying, you know, 600 River Street is going to be a tough sell again. He's like, why don't we move it over to Fiesta Gardens? I, there, you know, we can tuck it underway under part. Uh, we can see if we can make it happen on a fast track. So it was interesting. Within the arts community, there was several, I would say it was probably split. Half of us were like, um, yeah, let's take it to Fiesta Gardens. You know, it's in the barrio. We can do it. But then there was another half of us that were like, so... If we want to have a Mexican-American cultural center, we've got to be on the other side of I-35. There's a pattern that we didn't want. That's a pattern that that, that half did not want to follow. Um, so one of the first things that we moved for was we want Fiesta Gardens. Yes, we want that. You know, it's ours. It's in the barrio. But we also want 600 River Street. <laughs> Why should it be one or the other? Why can we not have both? And so I remember we all collectively came together and we asked uh, uh, council member Gus Garcia to designate the site for us. So that was an important building block. Mm -hmm. uh, and so he passed the city and got it approved by city council, uh, a resolution for the designation of 600 River Street for the Mexican-American Cultural Center. That was a, a tremendous banner for us because all of a sudden now, with a certainty, we can imagine this space. We, could, we have the land, we can imagine it. So it was designated in perpetuity. Which was, didn't that just sound beautiful? Mm -hmm. um, do I keep on going or do you want me to stop here? I think you should keep going. Okay. 
and at any time, let me know. If I just, in my mind, I'm saying it's so interesting that that's so close to where Juarez Lincoln was. Yeah, exactly. Across the other side of I-35, and that divide yep. keeps coming up. And and I think Kathy Vasquez says in her interview that was that's a huge moment, and deciding yep. that it's going to be there and and not not in El Barrio. Right, right, right. And I remember clearly, uh, you know, all of a sudden when the idea of it's either one or the other, and when we all collectively said, no, both. Mm-hmm. It was a moment of like, we've got a voice again. Mm-hmm. We artists have come together, and we're now determining where we, how we want to create our art, where we want to create our, our art, and who we're going to work with. We're going to work with each other to create this art. Um, so we got, we got uh, and the task force had been working hard in always, uh, you know, continuing to de- evolve the surveys, deciphering its information, presenting its reports, making itself constantly visible in, in all the bureaucracy that is the city of Austin. Um, and I remember also uh, Council Member Garcia said, okay, so, so we've got the site designated, the artists are coming together. Now we need a vehicle we need to evolve the task force. He didn't quite say it like this. He, you know, he was kind of, he was like, the task force, now, now we need a nonprofit then that the city can contract with to get the site built. And that's where CIMACA, the Center for Mexican-American Cultural Arts, came on board. We've, we established as a, as a nonprofit, and, um, and immediately we, we started putting all the pieces of, we, our goal was to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. We got the site designation. We need to start doing some fundraising. We need to bring together the artist. We need to get ready for the next bond election, which happens every six years. And so we're putting all the elements into place. Uh, we, I remember specifically on, uh, with CIMACA, we ended up meeting with, I think, every neighborhood association in Austin. Uh, we ended up, uh, uh, it was through CIMACA that we ended up uh, funding the Pastorela at the MAC. Uh, as a matter of fact, the big silver tin barn that was there that was part of Public Works, uh, you know, it was CIMACA that was able to secure funds for the development of that project. Uh, and we also made sure, we worked hard to make sure that, that uh, we were supplying information to the media. So we were doing, it was the kind of like the nonprofit administrative machine, the vehicle, uh, to, to make sure that the project moves forward and prepares itself for the next bond election. Wait, could you tell us who was in CIMACA? Was it just a partly of the, the, the task force into this nonprofit, or were they different? No, uh, the people? task force did evolve into CIMACA. Okay. And so at the very beginning, I know, I know like the first layer of, of CIMACA formants, mm-hmm. you know, the, the forming uh, members. I know Silvia Orozco was part of it. Uh, Kathy Vasquez was part of it. Uh, Tomas was part of it. I was part of it. Uh, I want, I'm not sure. I, I kind of remember Delia Perez Meyer. I think she might have been part of it. Uh, and so there was a whoever was on the task force at, at that moment. We perfectly slid into the role as a nonprofit. Um, and within the nonprofit, we even brought more members on board. Uh, so I want to say when we got started, it was like nine members. Uh, our, our, we enjoyed expanding the board to include everything from an attorney to an accountant uh, to more media uh, and everything. And so that's where more members ended up coming in, folks like Melvin Wren, 
uh, Jorge Sanchez, uh, folks like Valerie Menard, folks like Angel, oh, what's Angel's last name? Angel, we just call him Angel. Uh, Angel. And, we, uh, and so we had a lot of folks that came on board in Simaca also, and the whole purpose was, yeah, let's get this project rolling. And, and the year we're talking about is, you know, 92, 93, I had just mm -hmm. come back. I, I was fired up. And, and, you know, for me, it, what was my interest? I want a space where I can dance and where my kids can dance. So as we were preparing for, uh, as we were pre pre preparing for the 1998 bond election campaign, we sat in with the city to begin to do the feasibility studies of how much is this facility gonna cost. And um, I remember specifically sitting down with, uh, with the city managers and uh, Paul Saldana with uh, Gus Garcia's office, and sitting down there and, you know, okay, so what do we need in this space? And I remember there was this very fueled passion for theater space. Because I think if anything is missing in Austin, it's theater space for Latino arts, Latino, Mexican-American, Chicano arts. And so we ended up, you know, evolving this idea of, of space. Uh, so that as the city, as, as we were mo moving forward, I remember the city being, am I narrating all right? That's great. Okay. And as, as we were, and feel free to ask questions at any point. And because who knows, tomorrow my, I might not be able to remember anything. <laughs> Maybe hit by a bus. And so we were putting everything into place in, on the eve of the 98 election campaign. And I remember we were all so nervous. Mm. And I remember Gus Garcia, uh, along with council, other council members, uh, were bundled the MAC, not by itself, but under, the, I think the heading was uh, libraries, uh, museums, and cultural centers. And of which we were able to, to secure a $10.9 million uh, bond uh, award, award for the Mexican-American Cultural Center, which was so exciting for us. It's like, we did it. We organized people. We see the MAC on the horizon. It's gonna happen. Artists were anxious, anxious, I cannot tell you. I was anxious. We are going to have this Mexican-American Cultural Center. That was 98. After the bond was made, then quickly, all of a sudden, a lot of things go into play. And all of a sudden, here's uh, the element of politics that we were not prepared for kicked in. When you, with Simaca, we had hoped that we could own our own future. What I mean by that is, just like the Zachary Scott Theater, now the Long Center for the Performing Arts, Paramount Theater, State Theater, Laguna Gloria, and I can keep on rattling off a few more. If you notice, they're all mainstream art organizations. Code for white. All of a sudden, we're entering that class where we're a nonprofit. We can have public land like these other venues, these other organizations have, and we can manage it as a community through a board, just like Zachary Scott and Paramount Theater. But it was right at that juncture that all of a sudden the political winds came, came, came right at us and we were not prepared for this. 
partly because we don't have a history of being in that, in that level of, of development. I remember specifically, I, I don't remember the name of, of the developers, but developer after developer ended up coming up because all of a sudden the site was designated, we got funds to build a place. Developers were coming up to us saying, that land is too valuable uh, for Mexican-Americans. Uh, we had developers wanting to say, hey, we'll buy half of that from you. Uh, we had, yeah, and so all of a sudden we were getting, we were, the whole board was getting swamped with, with these inquiries. This was new for us, but we had done our homework in putting all the blocks in place. And so we knew we were standing firm and we were not, we were totally interested in resisting any of that stuff, any of that static. Why? Because we wanted to create a nonprofit that manages the Mexican American Cultural Center on a city site, just like any of the majors do here in Austin. The deep pockets of Austin started speaking. Um, and it became challenging for us. Challenging and such that, you know, we had council members that were beginning to question our motives. From day one, my, my, only, my only selfish interest was to have a theater space that I can create dance and my children can dance on in the future, creating world-classedness for my community. I think everybody that sat on the board had that same desire. But when, when all of a sudden, uh, you know, you've got the machine of the, the city of Austin starting to question, where's this project going? When you've got developers that are whispering in their ears and approaching us, mm -hmm. it becomes a major, a major, um, a major challenge because you've got to stand very firm. And at that moment, that's when we asked the Simaka board, said we have a arts community. Our arts community stands behind this project because we are going to own our future. We're going to create our income generation machines on the site. We're going to develop this MAC project. We're going to have storefronts on Waller Creek. We are going to be the Waller Creek prime developers because we have to create a way where we're not asking for money. Rather, we're creating the money for our space. Well, we didn't know that the, that the deep, deep pockets and the political interests in town, they were going to go through the top down and from the bottom up. And it, it ended up fragmenting this place that we thought was very solid and, and, uh, and principled. Um, as we were moving forward, we still had the site designation, we still had the bond package, we had the nonprofit, and like any bond package, you know, it's got to move forward. So at this time, you know, we were beginning to, there was, the city put out a request for proposals for architectural renderings for the space. Um, should we take a break here? If you would like. Yeah, let's take a break. Okay. okay. Became a very, um, that became a, a bridge to cross. And it's one of those that, uh, that if I were to, looking at things in hindsight, could things have been different? And my thought is, yes. I think the principles that I held on to and that I held on to 
when I was leading the Simaka, along with all the folks that were working with me on, on Simaka, I think we, we wholeheartedly felt like we were standing firm in maintaining the site, maintaining ownership of the site in the hands of community members. For us, that was the most important element of this whole project. The last thing we wanted was for this to be a project of governmentality. So, <clears throat> as we moved forward uh, with the project, uh, all of a sudden, we were beginning to, to move forward. We, got, we ended up getting uh, the contract with the city uh, for the planning and development of the site. We were beginning to move all the elements into place as it relates to beginning to bring uh, large funders to the table uh, to begin to buy to do the project. We had uh, Jesus Arguelles develop a management and operations uh, uh, master plan. Mm -hmm. uh, we ended up uh, uh, producing uh, some, some forecasts as it relates to what this project should look like or feel like. Um, but we had these political winds now that we were, we were having to, to confront and to deal with, of which, uh, at the end of the day, there is no nonprofit that can weather uh, the, the degree of pressure that a government, uh, that governmentality offers. I mean, the unlimited resources of legal staff and, and, um, and the political office will all, always out uh, really encumber of the work of, of a nonprofit, and it did us. Um, we moved forward. I personally sat on uh, architectural design committee with uh, four other city of Austin planners, where we sat to to look at at least a dozen proposals that were uh, presented uh, the city, uh, and. Uh, you know, I one voice, the Simaka voice, on this panel of five, uh, I think we unanimously, virtually unanimously, uh, selected uh, the architectural designs of Teodoro Gonzalez de Leon. And so we moved forward. You know, in my, in my hindsight and recalculating everything, I think that was another critical moment because I think we were looking to do the best job that we could. I think even the city was, uh, the administrators were looking to do the best job that we could. And I think there was a politic involved that, uh, that we didn't foresee or we didn't calculate or incorporate. I think to an extent there might have been this idea that this should, this should be an Austin legacy project. And, uh, and that's, a, that's a local context. I think we were looking more as a, at an international, con in, in a national, international context where Austin, the capital of Texas, we could create a world-class cultural center that becomes the stop to the Americas, where we could present work um, 
that reflects Austin, that reflects you know, the, the Mexican-American community. Four folks passing through on their way through, through the corridors. And in turn, you know, we could set, ship our work out to other quadrants of, of our communities uh, in America and, and through Latin America. We were very much interest, interested in, you know, in, in using the whole concept of centrifugal force, you know, build it and then it gets, it gets stronger uh, towards the center, bring in the, uh, the idea or the models of, of uh, what I call the three ends, you know, inspiration, infrastructure, uh, and innovation. Uh, together in one model that that only leads to to great work. So clearly, we were operating on one constitution, one constitution that has deep roots in the community, uh, with the, with the arts vision, with the with the administrative structure that uh, that that could manifest those needs, and with the idea that. And with the idea that that we could see ourselves creating the work there, that's the art that goes inside the building. Mm -hmm. I think the building itself, some serious, honest political conversations needed to be held prior to us, as the managing board at the time, moving forward with the vision for a space for the artists. Mm -hmm. And I think had we sat down and heard those political conversations, those political dreams, there would have been more information on the table then that could have been a little bit more decisive. Things proceeded the way they proceeded and then all of a sudden um, there was a lot of tension. Tension from on top down, bottom up, uh, that was had to be uh, dealt with by the Simaka board, and it became very challenging. We, um, we were able to lo uh, identify and locate the architect. We were able to secu secure the contract. You know, we are, you know, from, from the community to the task force to Simaka to now the city, that is the bloodline of, of the MAC project. So here we are at Simaka. All of a sudden, the political winds came to us, and the contract for management of the site was rescinded. City ended up assuming control of the project. The one thing that I think I know I personally never wanted was the city to be deciding my art. You know, here we are, what, six years with the facility open, and I'm still waiting. This is exactly what I did not want, and I don't think any of us from Simaka or anybody in the community really wanted was for the artist to still be somehow operating as a second consideration or an afterthought. Mm -hmm. We were always wanting, going back to the model that I worked in in San Antonio, we wanted the artists to be central to the design of the project, where the artists are the programmers, the program directors, the program instructors, the drivers of program, and where Simaka, the administration, would be the would be the facility and the funders. Mm -hmm. We entertained an idea when we were doing the Arguellas report that how could this MAC project build within the model some revenue generators, 
I mentioned that we were wanting to, to do uh, some work, try to incorporate the land on Waller Creek. Waller Creek is still one of those projects that I think the MAC needs to jump on right now. Uh, because that river, uh, that river walk is going to happen. And how great is it if we could be the first, we could be the anchors. Um, um, so we always wanted to, to really build in this, this idea of, of, of partnerships. Partnerships, whether it's public, whether it's private, whether it's uh, uh, municipal, whether it's uh, you know, uh, incorporated. We wanted to build these partnerships so that it could continually provide funding so that the artists can do their work. Um, like I mentioned, you know, the MAC Project's uh, bloodline now has, now it evolves into, into the city of Austin. And here I've kind of been, uh, I, I moved into graduate studies and I've been kind of spending my time uh, focusing on some personal development. Uh, in reflection and in hindsight, I can't help but to ask, you know, some, some larger questions. And here I'm kind of bringing my, my conversation to, to uh, full circle. I can't help but to ask some questions. Some, they're, they're quite profound questions, questions that need to be examined and explored. And for me, one of them is this idea of, is there a notion that started way back when, you know, with, with the beginning of the, the destruction of Juarez Lincoln, going back then even before. What has there, or is there, or, and I'm sure it's not written, but there is an ideology, a neoliberalist ideology, that somehow always fraction, uh, fractions communities. And um, this project, uh, and I see it, uh, the, this trend all across the nation. Uh, we can look, you know, just a little bit north to the, what's it called, the, uh, uh, the Latino Theater in Dallas. Um, is the city better positioned and can it better serve in the development and production of art? And if so, what does that say about a city? where it has to define how a city and what a city opts to project to its larger community within its region. That becomes a very problematic question that in, in reflection and hindsight has to be answered. Was this project and is this project designed in such a way that it, community was required to go through all of this, this work. But has it always, main, has the city maintained a position where if there is a designation of public land, it will decide in whatever form or fashion and in whatever scale or scope what gets produced there. And if so, that becomes even more problematic because then there's a double standard because of the other facilities with site designations on public land 
that are able to define their own futures, to define their art. That's one. Another question that I have is, does this project then become a focal point for diffusing the possibility of other developments in, with, with nonprofits? Because they'll always have, there's always going to be a standard city response that, well, we have the MAC. Mm -hmm. How does that actually, that action actually impact a future for a larger diversity of cultural arts organizations. Another aspect that I think, and going back to the like the first question, you know, who decides, is Mexican American and Chicano art is a working class art. It's an art of a people. It's an art of it's, it's art about struggle. It's art about dreams. It's art about a, a long distant, distanced Native American root and an Espanol arrival. It's art that expresses our new place in time. The struggles that I mentioned about when I go travel and study, this, this fitting in but not fitting in. Where within this project is the voice for that? Or will this cultural center, being that it is a, being that it is a model for, for it, it's, a, it's a city program, a city project, a city facility, will it always aspire to limit, silence, suppress, or erase? And I, I would hope not, because I never dreamed the Mac to be that. Rather, for me, it was about creating a space that is completely open for new ideas of the future. Going back to artists and what I mentioned at the very beginning, you know, artists are the beacons of society. They're the canaries in the coal mine. They are the ones that produce works that lift the spirits of communities. They're the ones that reflect the, the, the struggles and, and the hardships. They're the ones that design beauty and inspire community. You know, kind of bringing my conversation to, to, to full circle, artists working hands in hands with community is where I feel like this project should be, should have always been and not, now the big question then comes, we've got this MAC facility, how are we gonna pay for it? How is it going to short circuit other futurities or other futures of artists? What, how will this project overshadow, almost make live in the shadow the experiences and expressions of artists that are community-based and that don't have access or, or bureaucratic savvy to work within systems. So, you know, those are big questions that need to be answered. Um, and what is your involvement now in the center? Um, have you performed there? Use the space? 
I've gone to a lot of meetings there. Yeah. That place is great <laughs> for meetings. Uh, it seems like that's what they do a lot of. Uh, no, you know, I haven't performed there. You know, the, uh, I'll, I'll be, you know, point blank honest. Uh, it's ill-equipped for my needs. Mm -hmm. um, in dance, I, and I know I've mentioned this to some of the Mac folks, and dance is one of those, for dance, you need to create an environment that becomes a sacred space for the passing of embodied culture. For dance, it's not, in dance, you have to have that sacred space that's called the studio. It's not a space where you know you move this and, and then you can put a table there and, and then let's set up some chairs. Oh, let's just move this out of the way and let the dancers dance. That is doing such a disservice to the legacy and to the histories of our embodied traditions that live in the body. Dance is about creating a space that is uninterrupted, where if there's one body in that space, it interacts with another body where in that space what gets sculpted is designed to capture the spirit of the viewer and of the community. Where in that space, development happens. Where in that space, one body speaks to all the bodies within the community. That space needs to be very well equipped to facilitate the artist's needs. That doesn't exist. Uh, and that's just, that's in the process side. And on the performance side, of course, there is no stage that adequately handles uh, dance at the Mac side, uh, even if it's, you know, the large ballroom. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it's, it just doesn't work. And taking it a step further, you know, Latino culture loves to stomp our feet on the ground. <laughs> and so everybody's worried about the floors. And it's like, uh, you know, <laughs> artists don't worry about that. Are you still involved with Simaka? I am still with Simaka. Right now, what we're working to do, which is part of continuing to build the building blocks, is we embarked on a project that was called a Serape Weaving Project that uh, we embarked on a couple of years ago. And the whole idea was we were going to, we began to build some, uh, uh, some conversation with Saltillo, our sister city. And we literally focused it on Serapes. So we had weavers coming to Austin to do weaving workshops. We would send some of our artists over there to, co uh, to collaborate with them in learning of weaving. But that was, conceptually, that was phase one. Phase two now is, okay, so you've got your loom, the taller. You begin to weave, you know, the, the fabrics to make the serapes. What if we replace the thread with people, mm -hmm. with organizations, with community, and all of a sudden you make a beautiful serape, a tela mm -hmm. of, of community. So our next phase right now is what we're looking to do is, right now if, if, a, if somebody comes to Austin and they want to know about la anything Latino arts, mm -hmm. you know, where do you go? There is no place. So what we want to do is begin to assemble all the art groups and begin to create a resource and information center. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea is there's one logo, and that one logo goes everywhere. Uh, it goes in the Austin Convention and Visitors Bureau. It gets up on a billboard on I-35. It gets uh, implanted as a logo on the front of all of our working studios. It gets into all of our program brochures. So that we begin to, to show audiences that we're a weaved community. Mm -hmm. Click on that and boom, all of us come up. Mm -hmm. 
it'll hopefully it'll have a calendar of events, classes, organizational histories, links to each other's websites, uh, and it becomes a resource center. So that's, that's, that's the weaving project that CIMAC is We're really focused on that. So we want to do not just a website, but also a very interactive uh, component where people can actually also submit their information. If they want information regarding dance, you know, the moment they hit it, boom, they get something right back. Uh, and so the idea is to, to let audiences and artists and, com and the whole community in general know that you know, there's working artists, hungry, mm -hmm. hardworking artists. And, uh, and Simaka is here to continue doing what we've done since day one is continue to support the arts. Awesome, yeah. that's great. So just to kind of finish our time here, I'd like to know some of the, the most difficult challenges that you face in this timeline of Mac from idea to, to what it is now. And then we'll also talk about the rewards. We won't, right. But let's, let's do the challenges first. I really do feel like the challenges that, that faced me personally and that I ended up having to confront without, uh, it, without knowing much about is the political framework that the Mexican-American Latino community operates in and from within the city of Austin. I think we, I know we've chatted in the past, and there's this idea that we have to be one thing, and if conformity doesn't follow that one framework, then you're already op operating outside of it. And you know, that, just the logistical reality: we have one council member. Any item comes to city council that affects or is about the um, the Mexican American community. You know, all heads just turn, turn one way. That's problematic. I, I, I confronted mm -hmm. this idea that there is only one way. And because we worked outside of the box and we were approaching things multifold, I think we were, we were, we were spanked mm -hmm. hard. Uh, but looking back, would have I elected to operate one way? And I can honestly say, you know, while it was a huge challenge, I couldn't see myself electing pacificity. For me, it's about challenging systems, un unveiling new possibilities and undergoing serious change. And hopefully in the future, part of that change can be, you know, the, uh, the political way we operate here in Austin, uh, which is you know, to an extent provincial, a little bit static mm -hmm. and not very responsive. Mm -hmm. But I love Austin. Mm -hmm. the, it, I think it's the people that I love. Uh, we just, you know, I think all bureaucracies have their, their mechanisms. Earlier, you mentioned some political discussions that were happening at the at the time after the bond was passed, but but they weren't incorporated into your final decision. Mm -hmm. How do you think that that can be changed? How 
what was the challenge then to, to listen to them or to, to have them come to the table and how going forward you can make sure to incorporate those voices as well. Yeah, I think the, you know, the first part of the question is, is interesting because artists never conform. And I think the nature of this pro project is a political project at the end of the day because of the land, the value of the land. Can you imagine what 6.2 acres of downtown prime real estate on, the, on Town Lake is valued at? Politics, lock, stock, barrel part of the project. Um, I think we as artists, with the passion that we have, with the drive that, that is part of our DNA, and with the motivation to build a future, um, yeah, I, yeah, I question whether, whether we, we could have conformed. Um, so then the next question then becomes, well, okay, then we had, we had the political winds that it became whirlwinds that dusted up. Could they have somehow supported the direction that we were moving in? I would offer yes. But because we were not sitting at the table at the same time, differences became very clear. Um, and we're talking futures here. We're talking about, you know, political futures. Mm -hmm. We're talking about definitions. We're talking about you know, how the community sees itself. We're talking about serious issues here. We're not talking about, you know, anything small. No, this, this is like, the, the, the project moves on into the future long beyond where we're here. And so that's why I say this project to an extent, you know, I think it, it is a legacy project. Uh, and I'm just wondering, I'm just wondering, I think I mentioned to you a little bit earlier that, that you know, we, the Mexican-American community, especially here, here in Texas, you know, Austin, a little bit less so, but, you know, we are a culture of, of, of poverty that, that, you know, for centuries have not been part of the mix and the paradigm. And now all of a sudden, here we are at the apex of opportunity with the site designation, the center of Austin, um, I think, you know, the politics of greed, because the land is so valuable, because the land is, you know, centrally situated, because the land is political in nature. People salivate in deciding its fate, its future, whatever it be. I think the fact that we as a, a team of artists and community individuals decided its fate before that machine could put its hands into it. You know, uh, was, it was very powerful for us to say, hey, it's here, we're not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, but we had to deal with consequences. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, that's one of, the, one of the, the, the real serious moments that it was a wake up call for all of us and we, were, we had to deal with it on our feet and you know, I dance a little bit so I could kind of move mm -hmm. with it and keep it sweet. Uh, 
but that was a story I did not know, and I couldn't have even predicted its writing. Um, of course, you know, now we're we're at this stage of the game, and you know, I'm, I'm hoping for bright future still. I hope artists can uh, can be the can somehow reassume vision of the project. And I'm talking about artists owning our future, owning the vision, not waiting for budgets to be approved, for this to happen, to wait till the next bond election, you know, wait for a council resolution. I'm not talking about that. I want artists to come in and make a difference. I want us to figure out how we don't have to do all that stuff, how we can turn the facility into a place where we bring kids in for classes. They're inspired to tell their parents about it. Projects are built uh, with the talent, with the skills and talents that they learn, where community can come together and create change, and where the artists can be leading the charge. And I, I do feel like it can happen. I think. And some of the most rewarding <laughs> times that you've had? The most rewarding times was, no doubt, the passing of the bond election. Mm -hmm. Because all of a sudden it was, um, by this time, I think, what, 15, 20 years had already passed. It was like, we didn't think, you know, we weren't, didn't know if it was going to pass. And when we're all sitting around looking at the television that it passed, that was a, a, a very pivotal moment because all of a sudden we got the site designation, we have a nonprofit, and now we've got the bond monies. You can't, you can't turn that around. And so for me, that was a, a, a really beautiful moment. I think, you know, the, the um, while I can say the opening of the MAC, the grand opening, was also a very beautiful moment. For me, the breaking ground, and then a few months later, seeing the trucks hmm. begin to break the serious ground, not the, the pretty shovel. I'm talking about getting those trucks in there, beginning to, to move everything off seeing those white wall structures coming up, that's when it's like, after all is said and done, who cares about the politics? <laughs> I could care less because I see the wall coming up. And that's something that I, along with numerous others, along the whole 30, 40 year history of this project, we did that. And it's there. And so, you know, I, I go every, whenever I go to, to the MAC site, you know, I, I look at it and I'm like, we built it. We're not finished. Mm -hmm. We got a lot of work to do. Yeah. And so, ten years from now, what would it look like with the artist there in control? With, with the <laughs> artist in control, and, and you know, there's some great models. I look at, like, for example, Jumpstart in San, in San Antonio, and they're like, a, they're like fantastic programmers, um, and they're all artists, mm -hmm. and their whole principle, their whole ethic, even within their mission statement, the way they write, the sweetness of what they're what they outline their work is. It's to bring artists in and let them decide what's going the future of, of their programming. So in 10 years, what do I see? What I would love to see is the Waller Creek site developed with little cafes, little restaurants, uh, little tienditas that sells the artist's work that gets created in the Mac site uh, as part of the larger Mac structure. I imagine right now we just have the auditorium pyramid, but the other two pyramids, uh, 
uh, fully charged with the excitement of, of, of locally produced badass sh uh, projects, performances. One, in one space could be theater, and the other space could be a dance show. While there's a visual arts uh, event happening in, in the galleries along with class students, and whoever's not attending that could go down to the little cafes, uh, and of course all those those stores, the, the, the revenue income generating support for the artwork. Uh, while in the plaza, there's a mercado, you know, and I see this happening every weekend. Uh, that would be the dream. That would be where I would want to be. That I know it would be where my, my youngsters would want to be. Um, it's where the Aslan, if, if anywhere the Aslan dance technique ought to live, mm -hmm. should be at the Mexican American uh, Cultural Center because I am a product of this community. I, I've danced this dirt, uh, and the Mac should house what I what I give. Uh, and youngsters should continue within that sacred studio space. I could be there, and, and some of the dancers that I've already imprinted their body form with uh, can continue moving forward this idea and this notion of creating new, cutting-edge, innovative, thought-provoking uh, dance work that narrates the story of, of a people. So whether it's Planet X or whether it's a Mercado en Laredo, it's got to happen. <laughs> I, Throughout our discussion, yep. we've talked a lot about community involvement, whether mm -hmm. it's the artist or the politician, the activist. What is the best way to do that outreach? You did it through the bond election, and we mm -hmm. talked a little bit about that. But now we're kind of in a new age. How do you reach the community? How do you get them involved again? I think, uh, I think there's different strata. I think what Simanca is doing right now with trying to create the Serape of arts is definitely one one step, one layer of of the of the three layer, seven layer cake. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so that's one layer. The other is, I think, like the MAC, and whether it's through the advisory committee or, or whether it needs to develop a separate a separate. I think it needs to create a little marketing team. Mm -hmm. That their sole job is to is to not be at the MAC, but to be everywhere else, mm -hmm. uh, where, uh, where, their, where their role is to be going to the schools, going to the neighborhood associations, going to events, going to everywhere, and really you know, continuing the dialogue of, you know, we're only phase one. We still need phase two, phase three. We need you. I think that's another side. I think another phase is, is like opening the space up for community proper mm -hmm. and you know something as subtle as subtle as having little outdoor speakers playing you know musica musica del barrio mm -hmm. the multiple the multiple musical sounds of, of, of a people to have that out there where people people can find a, uh, a place to to begin to identify with I think that's the the you know the, the, the Mac is a gorgeous space but but we don't identify with it because it, it's still not offering an identity. And I think that would be quite helpful. Um, let's just start doing some badass programming. You know, I think, I think at the end of the day, you get the artists in there and start doing some badass programming. We'll discover each other. And I'm, I'm talking about little kids discovering each other, you know, talking mm -hmm. to each other, parents discovering each other, artists discovering, and then, and then you know, going lateral and horizontal, you know, just having all those intersections happen, I think uh, I think that's the future. Mm -hmm. 
but no doubt that that, that question of revenue um, has to be addressed. You know, I, I don't want our community constantly waiting for funding. I think we need to take a, a little bit of ownership and, and direction and begin to define our future financially also. Is there anything that we didn't cover today that you would like to add? Um, no, I mean, well, yes. I guess I would like to just kind of take this moment to, to reflect back on all the people where there have been differences, especially in the arts community, you know, where the differences, ha where there have been differences. It's like my mother's uh, father used to always say, you know, and so my mother always would tell me that when as I was growing up and I think they're, they're, they're very valuable words this idea that that we're all in it together but we, we don't have to necessarily um, get to the point where our differences end up becoming points of contention and so like all the people that that have worked on the project uh, it, for some it's been labors of love for all others it's been uh, moments for um, for discord. I just want to say to everybody that's worked on the project, and I know you know from the days of like Diana Castaneda and Carlos Pineda that, that I remember, all the way forward, it's all needed to have happened in order to get us where we are now. Mm -hmm. And I think now we need to discover. I, I think those now need to serve as as memories. We need to remember and, and take the the cues and the lessons, so that we can begin thinking forward in new ways. And I don't want us to be thinking forward, and this is just me speaking out, this is my personal uh, agenda. I don't want us to be at the mercy and at the hands of governmentality. I want the artists and I want the su supporters, whether it be you know, a, a, you know, some kind of a funding structure, uh, some kind of a nonprofit, whatever, that supports the artists and lets the artists be who they wanna be and, and be the greatest that they can be, because if we can't have the Mac doing that, who? Mm -hmm. And so I would ask for, uh, you know, I just want to thank everybody that's supported the project, no doubt. Mm -hmm. But I also want folks to like, okay, let's turn the channel. We got phase two and phase three now. Those are even bigger challenges. Mm -hmm. So, I, 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 you know, my closing thoughts would be, you know, those two frame, frames of reference. One, okay, folks, turn the page, got to move forward. And then the other one is don't lose sight of the artists. Well, I'll see you out there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was a very informative and passionate um, interview. And I think that that passion is what you see time and time again in every interview yeah. and every person who worked on it. And thank you for so eloquently um, illuminating that for us. <laughs> well, thank you. Pleasure.